everybody, and thanks again for joining us for an episode of Blacktop Banter. These episodes and how they are brought to you could not be done without the assistance of our sponsors. So please take your time and listen to the sponsors here at the beginning of the show and to our secondary sponsors after the show. They are all great companies within our industry that are looking to help us out in any way they can. This episode of Blacktop Banter is brought to you by KM International. KM International has been manufacturing the highest quality asphalt maintenance equipment for over 30 years. They started out as a two-man operation working in a pole barn. Now they got 40 employees working out of a 36,000 square foot manufacturing facility. It all started from their propane-fired skid-mounted hot box, and now they got over 40 different product offerings for contractors like you, like myself, whether it's private or municipal, whatever. Also, this commitment to our industry is one of the reasons that KM has been used now in over 44 countries and every single state in the United States of America. When it comes to KM, I immediately think of their infrared machines, but a lot of people also use their hot boxes. I would love to get my hands on one of these soon. I have seen them all over the country being used by contractors and municipalities, and some of these machines are you know, they've been around for a while when you see them. And I got to believe that that's probably because they increase profitability. So people keep them going. They're built really, really well. I was lucky enough to see a demo of one recently uh, at World of Asphalt. So they're built really, really well. Therefore, if they last a while and you're able to use them, you're going to get some cost savings and you're going to increase profitability, especially if you're using the infrared machines because you're not going to be cutting out and using material. If you want to check out more about KM International, they're on social media. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram. They also have a YouTube channel. If you want to get more information and you want to call, you can call 800-492-1757. You can also email them as well if you'd like. Sales at kminternational.com. One of the best ways, I think, is just to go to the website, kminternational.com. You'll be able to check out the full lineup and get started right there with checking out all the equipment out and reaching out to somebody if you want to check one out, demo one out and get interested. We've had our 800 network phone number on the side of our trucks and our vehicles and everywhere else here at Wiscote and Dubuque Asphalt Maintenance for a while now. And we're really glad to have them as a sponsor for the podcast for the next unforeseeable future, hopefully. But uh, some of the advantages that I want to talk about real quick about having an 800 network number is that A or one, we'll start with numbers. One, you get more work. Uh, two, it's really easy to cover the cost of the number for a year. One small job would cover that. So, you know, the rest of the calls and everything that comes in are, is strictly advantageously profit. The other thing is that you get exclusive discounts from top industry leaders. That's a big group network. They give you a group discount. We've used that discount um, by, for one of our sealer manufacturers and suppliers. The other thing is that they do reach out and get you national account work as well. So some of those big box stores and things you've been trying to get into. One of the other things is that the, the number is really easy to remember. Whichever you put on there, it helps with your branding and the calls go directly to you. So if somebody does call that number, it goes straight to you. And, you know, it's not so easy to get an advantage over your competition um, from, you know, here and there maybe a little bit. But 
when you talk about branding, having a branding power over your competition who has a number that's hard to remember and you go by and it just says 1-800-ASPHALT or 1-800-SEAL-COATING or 1-800-BLACKTOP, that's going to be pretty easy to remember. If you're in parades or you're out working on a job and your truck is parked there all day, your vehicles are parked there all day, that is going to get branded into people's minds over time. The other thing is when you join 800 Pavement Network, you're joining over 300 pavement contractors who've generated over $2 billion in combined total sales. So if you're interested, if you're curious, it's really easy to reach out and they will get back to you there at the 800 Pavement Network. You can call 1-800-PAVEMENT. That'll get you there. You can go to the website, 1-800-PAVEMENT.COM. That'll also get you there. And 800 Pavement Network is very active on social media. So you can find them on almost all social media outlets. Go ahead and type that in, 800 Network, 800 Pavement Network, and you'll find them. So I'm sure you guys have heard me talk about 28 Circles before and Jason share over there at 28 Circles. Uh, their marketing and SEO service that they provide has probably quadrupled our workload here in Dubuque Asphalt Maintenance and has added to our workload here at Wiscoat, which has allowed us to expand, to grow, to hire new people. Um, I can honestly, truthfully point directly to hiring Jason and the team at 28 Circles to take care of our SEO, our website, and some of our marketing there with Google and everything else to generate our leads and to help build our brand. It has literally helped us immensely. You know, you, it's rare that you get a marketing company that is strictly for asphalt and seal coating companies, but that's what 28 Circles is. Jason will call you, he'll email you, he'll text you. You deal with him directly to set up everything and how to reach your goals and develop a brand on Google and more. What he offers is a done for you, that's in air quotes, um, websites and marketing so that you don't have to worry about it, man. You want to be out there working, you know, putting asphalt down, seal coating, doing all that stuff and not worrying about you know, whether you have a great presence here or a great presence there, they take care of it for you. Right now at 28 Circles, they have two offerings. One is the welcome mat. It's $149 a month. Think about that. Let's just say you times that by 12. One job pays for that, right? If you times it by 10, one decent job pays for that, whether you're seal coating. If you're paving, it definitely covers it. That's it. And you don't have to worry about it the rest of the year. The second one is the growth plan. So let's say you've already reached a certain point and you want to improve and grow and do more. The growth plan is $449 a month and it includes everything in the welcome mat package plus everything that would help you grow and even grow and grow and even grow. You know, that's the idea of the increase of the growth plan over the welcome mat plan. If you call Jason at 720-476-2260 and mention myself, Marvin, or Blacktop Banter or anything like that, he will waive the $199 setup fee. It's gone. You don't have to worry about that thing. The other thing is there is a link below in this description of this episode. Scroll down there. You'll see it at the bottom. It'll say 28 circles link. Click that and that'll get you that $199 off the setup fee as well. 
And if you want to just check stuff out before you call or click the link or do whatever, go to 28circles.net and you'll find it there. I cannot recommend this to you guys enough. We are in a digital age. If you're trying to do it yourself, you're probably missing out and you're stretching yourself too thin. It's okay for the start, but hire a professional, somebody who does this all the time. And 28 Circles is strictly designed for our industry. I cannot preach that enough to you guys. I hope you call them. I hope you hire them. And I hope you get more and more and more success off of making a right choice like this one here. Hey everybody, welcome back. This is another episode of Blacktop Banter, and this is episode 82. We have had, you guys have had the pleasure of just me doing some solo ones here the last few weeks, and now we're going to be switching gears a little bit, have a good line of guests coming, and I know you guys followed along with my recent visit out to Ohio for the Downhill Skate, which covered Street Luge and Downhill Skate, of course, and after that, we already, I was posting some content, and uh, I connected with this guy on the interwebs as some of the older people in our industry would say and it was like dude yeah let's totally have a conversation so uh, without any further ado i want to introduce the 2017 street lose world champion ryan farmer ryan hey everybody happy to be here super excited for what you all do um, it has a big uh, impact for what i do and i think that's really important yeah absolutely i mean you know you guys are running on us you know like Literally, the guys that put the blacktop in. So tell us a little bit more about yourself and your career. Uh, I'm a totally a big fan of your photography that, that I get to see um, reg regularly now that I follow you and, and do everything as an observationist of the world myself. But tell us a little bit just about where you're at, what you do, and then we'll dig into like how this all got to this point. Yeah, so um, I'm uh, 29 years old and I started riding downhill about 11 or 12 years ago. Um, and it just started out just commuting and bombing the local hill and uh, meeting this amazing community that uplifted me. And, and I kind of opened my eyes to this whole sport that exists that I had no idea about. And um, there, there's a lot of small communities around, but there's also this amazing worldwide community of downhill skateboarders and street luge riders. And um, yeah, it's been a good excuse to travel. Uh, it's been something that has pushed me to be my best in every aspect of my life, which I think is you know, really important and also really helped me focus on what makes me happy. Oh, cool. um, and that's kind of where, where photography has came into play is I go to these events and there's great photographers around all over the place. And I'm really thankful for them. What they do is important. And I just was the person with a little point and shoot film camera and documenting what I saw, you know, the, the cool little things on the street corner, the local people, my side of things that weren't necessarily to turn into a magazine cover, but it turns out that people really enjoy seeing things through my eyes as well, which is awesome. Um, yeah, and I've just been able to plug in and help other people get into the sport and dial in their setups and talk about the good roads and the bad roads and everything in between. So we're, you know, where are you located at? I mean, when we say, yeah, we were just out here bombing the hills. I mean, some of these places across America are flatland and you're driving a while to get to some hills. Um, where are you at? Where are you, where are you located at? I grew up in Southern California um, in the LA Metro. And then I moved up to Northern California once I was tired of the rat race. You know, I was an aerospace machinist. 
making parts for some really large companies. And, uh, and I loved it. It was awesome. And it supported my travels while I was really serious about racing. Not that I'm not serious now, but I was doing a lot of world tours and, you know, really investing quite a significant amount of money. Whereas now I'm focused on the things that bring me joy, the local events that I can attend within my budget. And, uh, and quite amazingly, I still managed to qualify for team USA. So I'm going to be headed down to Argentina for the world skate games coming up next month, man. That's pretty epic. And I've noticed, uh, you know, just by me kind of being able to step my foot in the community a little bit this last year, that that's generating quite a, quite a buzz. Like there's a really, there's a lot of really good people, like not just great competitors, right. But they're just really damn good people. And it's like, dude, I totally want to see these people enjoy moments so much, right. Cause I got to see it a little bit in Ohio, like even people that were like, uh, uh, I made a really good friend, uh, Fred Laberge, and he was like, he come down. He's like, you know, he's French Canadian. He's like, Marvin, I made the final. I made the final, and I, I'm like, dude, congratulations. He's like, I'm so excited. We're getting beers, you know. And it was just <laughs> like, it was like, dude, dude, to see that kind of excitement, and then to see somebody in the buttboard final um, take third that had no idea that they were even going to be that close, and be so excited. It was like, dude. I can't remember I was when I was part of something that was so gratifying, like, like it was just was so gratifying seeing all that. So I completely understood then that when, when you mentioned, Hey, you know, I want to help people in this community, uh, enjoy the community, understand the community, join the community and, and all that as well. Let's kind of talk about um, your career a little bit. Right. And kind of, you know, what, like you said, you qualified for the world skate games, but what was it like leading up to the world championship as well? And then um, even now going into the skate games, I know California, from what I understand, has kind of its own scene inside of the national scene inside of the international scene. Am I right about that? Yeah. California is huge, as we all know. So (laughs) from where I used to live to where I live now is about a 14 hour drive. Um, And there's all these small communities that kind of build it together. And then there's a California outlaw racing scene where we just go out into the middle of nowhere, we close down a road and race down it for a weekend. And it is such a supportive event system that gets people in at all different base intro levels. Um, and the tracks are still challenging for even the best racers. So it's really fun to see people come out, be introduced to this community like you have been and then support them as they build their skills up where they're able to compete or not compete. A lot of people just like going down the hill and having fun and they're not interested in this serious high pressure situations. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed that, right. Like uh, when, when the event I went to like the top three, they were hungry. Right. And then you'd see the guys that were like maybe 30 seconds behind 20 seconds behind, even more, they'd, they'd hit a corner and they'd be going, yeah. It's like, dude, there's like, there's no sad place to finish when you're enjoying yeah, yourself no, that much, dude. It was, it was fantastic. And I think it makes it like, it makes it very unique. I don't know that I've, I've encountered a sport like that. I don't think. Right. Yeah. You know, when I got into the, the community, it was a lot of local stuff. And I mean, 2016, I was racing local events. I was doing well. I was supported by some really fast riders. And then suddenly I had a, a drive to get out of the big city And I figured I'm going to do a world tour and chase points for the International Downhill Federation and see how I stand against the best. And I reached out and I was really lucky and I got a couple of sponsors that committed and saw 
you know, the bright side of what I was doing and, and decided to invest in it. And I was able to go to 14 countries in 2017. And if you asked me in 2016 where I would be a year later, being a world champion was totally not even on my radar. And, um, and you know what? I, I, I traveled. I, I, I had a couple of pretty bad crashes right off the bat. And I learned real quick you know, um, what was important to me and, and enjoying the ride along the way, enjoying these countries, these people, the experiences in every place. Um, and yeah, I mean, I had a couple world championship wins. I had a couple World Cup wins and qualifier wins. And, uh, and it all came down to the final event in Killington, uh, Vermont. So that was after 14 countries and points were so incredibly tight that if I got second place, I wouldn't have been a world champion. And, uh, and believe it or not, Colby Parks, who you know, uh, we both ended up in finals. We came all the way down the hill and he almost got me in the final corner because he is a wild and really talented rider. And uh, I was able to win by just a, you know, a meter or two and, and pulled it off. And, and what that kind of did for me was not only put my name on a piece of plastic, you know, I had a trophy that said world champion and that was great, but it showed me that if I, if I set these goals and I kind of focus on what I want in life, that regardless if it's downhill skateboarding or happiness or career paths, um, any of these things can be surprisingly obtainable. And I think that I wouldn't have been anywhere in that mindset if it wasn't for downhill skateboarding and street luge. Dude, I think that that's a general vibe that I've caught, right? Like, yeah. like completely, it's not like it's like just this laissez-faire kind of thing. Like you guys are moving. Like, and it's not that you're like absolutely incredibly protected where you can just send it and have no fear like <laughs> right like like it's I, I think that just the fact sometimes that you get down the hill right is like this incredibly uplifting adrenaline pumping thing to where you you love it so it, there's a really unique combination there because the community is so supportive right and so enjoyable of all of each other that like i said there's not very much despair whether you're at the tail end of the pack or you're at the front and it just creates a general love i think for the sport because i didn't see very many people at all of all the downhill skate competitors um and street loose competitors when i was in ohio that had a frown about anything on the hill right like coming down like it wasn't any of that so it's 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 a very unique thing and i think that like you said it opens up something this unique sport this unique community it opens up something that allows you to see what's capable right of mm -hmm. beyond that and there's not too many things that are that are i guess how do i want to put that where we are street loose and downhill skate doesn't exist like there's no, yeah. there's, there's nothing. Sport. Nobody right. knows what we do. Right. So, so it makes me think like how many unique and different things are out there that are the key component for somebody to all of a sudden realize, well, this is just a gateway for me to really enjoy life and discover things about myself and how the world can work and how a person's personal legend. I always love to say personal legend because I, I read the alchemist a lot and um, you know, how you find that and how you get on that path and how that feels for somebody dude there's totally guys there that were you know they're gray man they've been there a while i was lucky enough uh while i was out there to meet uh bob schwartz 
And he was like, dude, he was, he loves it. He just loves it. Loves to be around it. Loves to talk about it. Just loves it. And he was like, this is my thing. Like this is which my- is funny because that man has done incredible things in his life, oh, but yet yeah. the, the thing that he's most stoked about is riding his street luge with a literal rocket attached to it at like 120 miles an hour down a drag strip. Yeah, and that is so incredibly cool. Yeah, yeah, awesome. yeah. And I mean, to me, I think about like, what if it didn't exist then? What would Bob Schwartz be, right? And then you think about it, like maybe you think about with Ryan Farmer himself now, like how would that be if if podcasting didn't exist? I would still be making blacktop black and being like, why the heck don't I enjoy my life so much? Like, what am I not doing? Right. That's not letting me enjoy this. I wonder how many of those different types of things there are. Like, you know, there's so many mainstream ones, right. Hey, get into football or get into soccer or join chess club or whatever the heck it is. But there's so many of these variations of different things that everybody should try. I think that gets them into it and gets them into the scene. I think a big part of it is the mentality too. You know, it's not just that these little sports or little activities change our lives. It's the mentality of, wow, I'm doing something for me. You know, so like we can go out to the work grind all day long and work hard and sweat and put in the time and support our families and these really important things that we need to be doing. But if we do it with an open mindset of, Who am I going to meet today? What flower am I going to look at on the way to work? You know, what smell other than burning black tar am I going to be smelling at work? (laughs) You know, if we can slow down and recognize these little things, it really can open up our life and enlighten us a lot more, I think. Yeah, I think so too. And that's why I comment about your photography. Those moments, those seconds that you capture are like windows into what's real in the world, right? Because the repetition of everything we see every day becomes almost numbing right mm-hmm. so you, you get to capture a moment and you're like oh yeah that exists during the day during the moment if i would just stop and look at it for just a second right and yeah. sometimes it just means bringing awareness and things to it and that's kind of i know you and i were talking beforehand so i'm going to segue this uh into it but um i was talking to you about how when i was at ohio i had an affection for the way the urethane wheels sounded on the pavement coming down the hill, right? Like of my day, of anything I seen, did, of any senses, and that's hardly ever happens to me, that sound through my ears was my favorite moment. And I would sometimes just stop and not even film, not record, not do anything, just wait for that to come. That that was a crazy thing because any you know anybody, if they've watched any of the content or anything, those are blind corners, some of them that I was around. So I didn't know who was coming, when they were coming, whatever. The only anticipation I had was that that sound. Um, and those were the moments during my time there where I was like, oh, this is so enjoyable. Like, yeah. Knowing what's going on, that kind of stuff. So let's talk about that a little bit, because I noticed that different parts of that track were that whether there was old pavement, new pavement, uh, patched pavement, fixed pavement, the sound would be a little bit different because the pavement was different. Um, after being able to take a world tour and do your thing, my friend, you've seen a lot of pavement, more different types and variations of pavement around the world than I have. And you've been up close and personal just as much as I have with pavement, um, <laughs> being that close to the ground. Um, tell me about some of the pavement types, regular black asphalt. I know for sure. Um, you know, that's a lot of the stuff here, limestone rock, sometimes granite rock, sand and uh oil and we mash that as much as we can to make it as smooth as we can 
I noticed that when you get to Europe, uh, it's not always so smooth. Um, can you kind of tell us about pavement types, different types, concrete, all that stuff, and you know, just kind of that general consensus of what you have experienced uh, in your career? Yeah, completely. You know, for us, it's this really intimate relationship with the ground that we have with pavement types, and each one of them have a have a characteristic that have some pros and cons. Um, what I've noticed a lot is cities and townships and counties that have a higher budget obviously spend that money on their roads more than some that don't. Um, so when you go to Europe, it's kind of the same thing. You'd be surprised some places that can get away with high-end maintenance on their roads, closing off a road that might not be necessary for winter so people aren't driving on it, they're not salting it. Oh, really? um, there's some really incredible pavement out there. It's just about where are they spending their budget. Um, and then you know the cheap way, I don't know if this is a technical term, but we talk about chip seal all the time mm -hmm. where, uh, where people come in and they take a beautiful blacktop road and they spray some chip seal on top of it. So they think they're making it last longer. It's yep. the lowest budget option that they can. And for us, it makes it rough. It makes it rattly. It makes it slow. You know, yep. like all racing, smooth is fast. And that is so true with gravity sports. You know, when we're talking about corners and everything like that, if you have something that is blacktop, butter smooth, it's going to rocket you out of the corner because you can stay in your tuck more. You can have a better line. You're not fighting these transitions in the road, these patchwork, you know, everything like that really plays in for what the best line is. Mm -hmm. And I talked about uh, in a, a magazine I'm working with, the Free Red Flyer, talked about reading the road. So I'll walk a track. I'll start at the bottom or the top and I'll come up and I'll get low and I'll see how the road makes around these corners and, and how the grades are, how the crest is, how the crown of the road. And, um, and then also transitions and things like that and grip. I'll put my foot on the, on the blacktop and I'll try to pull it and I'll see if there's a little fine silt layer and my foot just slips or if it's just like tacky, sticky kind of glue. Yeah. And, and all these things come into play when I'm reading the road. Now, that being said, sometimes there's the rare occasion where those bad transitions and, and patches make it extra unique in character. Um, and things don't have to be perfect to be fun, but it definitely helps make you faster if they are perfect. There's right. a road in Southern California that's, uh, it, it makes no sense. They built a new highway around it. They're never going to repave it. It's right on the border with Mexico near Tecate, Mexico. It's called Barrett Junction. And it is the worst pavement I have ever seen, let alone ridden down. There are yeah. potholes everywhere. There's sections that are practically gravel. And meanwhile, you're doing like 60 miles an hour uh, <laughs> happening from the ground trying to avoid potholes. So when you, when you talk about reading a road and you want to straighten out your corners and take that perfect race line you know when we come into an event and I walk the track I see sometimes that perfect race line isn't going to be the fastest sometimes I want to go around these potholes or we call it the bacon strips where they're all wavy and pressed up from cars driving over patchwork and it makes it interesting it makes it unique and it brings a whole nother level of how to read it now does that mean I wouldn't want them to repave Barrett? No, I absolutely would love them to repave it because it would make it so much faster. It would make it safer. You know, all these things that are, are welcoming to getting more people into the sport, but it definitely is kind of cool. And that noise you're talking about, it changes with each pavement, whether you have this smooth rocket ship flying past you or uh, a coffee can full of nails and bolts rolling down the hill. And there are <laughs> certain tracks that sound like that. You just sound, you hear the board, rattling and bouncing off the ground and 
and feet skipping across the pavement because there's no place to slowly and smoothly break. <laughs> and, and at the same time, everybody's hooting and hollering and having a great time and the smiles are all around. And, uh, and it just changes the characteristics. Now that would never be a World Cup level track. Right. Um, so it's, it's something that is just uh, the characteristics of the Southern California events and California Outlaw Racing Series. But I think that's still valuable. You know, and then when I go to places like Kazakov in the Czech Republic, that track gets closed down every winter. There's another way up to the top of the mountain and they protect it in such a level that creates this absolutely perfect racing experience. And the one of the best noises I've ever heard is standing on the side of Kazakov. When you have a group, you know, the free ride runs are multiple people. General racing, you have four people, sometimes six on certain tracks, sometimes two on really technical fast tracks. But you hear this pack of racers flying by you and it's just a, a whoosh, 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 whoosh. Well, Kazakov, all the losers sometimes will go down relatively close and you'll have 30, 40 people side by side at 70 plus miles an hour. And it is the Crap. coolest experience just sitting on the side of the road and you feel the wind blowing off of them and you hear their urethane wheels interacting with this perfect blacktop pavement. And that's, that's just this relationship that wouldn't be possible without people like you that make sure these roads are maintained and, you know, uplifted and, and held to a certain standard that I think is really important. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you think about all the different types of pavement, pavement maintenance, um, patching, and not only that, just the different combinations of ingredients that go into making a pavement, right? So whether it's asphalt or concrete, and I want to ask you about that, the transition, if there is some between concrete and those types of things and painted surfaces and whatnot, because you know, we, we like our street paint here, but in Europe, I've, I've come to find out they really enjoy it. They like it, putting it down thick and heavy <laughs> and a lot of it in a lot yeah. of, a lot of different ways too. But I really wanted to touch on, you know, the changes that have been made in pavement preservation at large, not so much in the residential and commercial space, but the municipal state level, that kind of stuff. It's really been crazy because that chip ceiling used to be uh, preservation tactic and technique once a pavement had probably hit 15 or 20 years old, right? So it took it once it was riddled and made it, okay, we're going to glue it together at the surface for a little bit longer so that we don't have potholes and stuff for as long as we can. Um, some places out here where we are in Wisconsin, that'll just be the way it is. They'll gravel a road, then they'll tar and ship it twice, and that'll be quote unquote paved. And it holds up really well out here where we are um, in Wisconsin. But now, um, pavement is getting a lot more, a lot more interesting because they're using what's called wrap recycled asphalt products. And they're making these pavements that are filled with these recycled asphalts. You've seen some of these machines that go along the highway and they're chewing up blacktop, shooting it into a dump truck. They take that recycled or ground up asphalt product, put that back into the same process that would be used to make virgin asphalt. The problem is that oil that they're putting in isn't being absorbed as well as it would have with a virgin rock. It's already been absorbed, right? So the, all they're doing is sticking it back together. It'll absorb a little bit because it's been oxidized, but not as much. So they've been doing that now for roughly 10 years or so, maybe more. But we, what we're finding is that the asphalt will deteriorate faster now, right? Okay. It just, it, it's, it's not it's not absorbed and as dense as it would have been regularly. So in order to slow down that process, they chip seal it right away. 
Like they'll put the black top down, they'll lay it, it'll be perfect. And they chip seal it right away. And you're just like, ah, oh. like, oh. like, why, like, why, why do that? Like, why even go through that whole process? Especially when you could just gravel it and tar and chipped it. And I wouldn't be so sad about it, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely noticeable. It's noticeable. It's noticeable when you're driving, right? It's noticeable. I'm a motorcycle rider. So I notice it on my bike, dude. And I'm just like, dude, when I go to a transition of fresh tarnship, I'm like, you know, Jesus take the wheel. Sometimes I'm like, it's, it's, it's dangerous. It's bad. Um, I understand where its purpose is, but um, they're doing it on a brand new drive, brand new highways and roads and stuff. And it doesn't make much sense at all, but that sound changes, right? You can just feel the friction change on your motorcycle tires, right? You, yeah. you hold on tighter, right? You go slower, like it, and it makes you go slower. So yeah, I mean, the, even the maintenance level changes the levels of those, those pavements and those conditions. But tell me real quick before we jump into like all kinds of conditions and how you adjust your hardware and, and what you're up to for these different types of pavements. The, I want to talk about those concrete transitions and those paint transitions and those types of things real quick. Like you, like if you, if you're doing a track walk and I, I want to tell you about my track walk uh, at Ohio too, but um, if you're doing a, a track walk and you're going down and halfway through it, there's a concrete piece near a corner. Does that change you? change your mind up very much and then if there's a painted crosswalk or if it's heavy traffic paint on the sides and that's where the good line is and you're like well you know if we're if we're dry we're fine if it's wet we don't want to be over there you know what i mean you read my no. mind. You read my is mind. that what it is so so there are a lot of tracks like that um one that comes to mind is in south america there's la leonera in colombia and the main hairpin corners are pretty much completely painted it's big huge white border lines um, in the corners and first day of practice dry everything was fine I walked the track I took my practice runs I started getting faster and faster and I figured out my race lines and then qualifying where it's timed runs solo down the hill second day and it was pouring rain and suddenly where I could hold a line before was puddling up and these uh, these paint sections had zero traction in them and suddenly I just had to hit the brakes so much earlier and, and even that in the braking zones were more striped paint lines and my feet, you know, the paint was almost a half inch thick. They just yeah. laid it on. <laughs> yeah, the I was going to say they layered it yeah. up. And there was just these transitions that every time I would put my feet down or come through a corner, it felt like speed bumps. Yeah. And, um, you know, it changed the mentality of, of the racing. It was more of a survive to make it down the hill and then just try to be in front while people are crashing out around you, um, which I, I'm not a huge fan of. It was a really, really fun track and it made really interesting racing. But the, the pavement painting that they did there made it quite difficult to read. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, like you mentioned, there's crazy technology in these things. There's another Street Luge rider that it was sponsored by an asphalt company in England. Uh, the sponsor was Bitchukem. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that okay. right. Yeah. But they, um, they have everything to like glow in the dark pavement paint, which, um, you know, I've never ridden over it. But it yeah. makes me wonder what the future of our sport is going to be like with these different changes in renewability and the resource availability and how that relationship is going to change with what we're doing because everything that we do is already on this whole system of pre-built roads none of this is built for oh, us yeah. the infrastructure is already there which is great because we can go to places that would never build you know like an ice loose track for 30 people to show up on top of the andes <laughs> but we can go out to peru and suddenly there's these 60 hairpin you know, 15,000 foot passes that are just dreamy to ride a luge down. 
yeah. for now. How is that going to be in the future? Yeah. I mean, it, it almost puts you in like a Tron kind of thought process. When I think of it, <laughs> when, you, when you talk about the glowing paint, like you could totally pull off, uh, you know, glowing sidelines all the way down, a glowing middle line, and then everybody be having something on the back, a color, a light or something. And you could totally do a night run. Right? We've, done, we've done night runs and it's yeah. uh, it's always interesting because sometimes with the full moon and a couple of street lights, it is really fun and not very dangerous. You can see really well. And then suddenly you get no moon and, you know, you go out there in the middle of the night and you can't see anything except what your headlamp illuminates, you know, yeah. feet in you <laughs> at yeah. 40 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Dude, it's it's totally cool to think about that futuristic wise, right? Like just man, what 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 could be possible? What is possible? Real quick before we get going, I'll tell you about my track walk and kind of what I what I think may have like adopted me so promptly into the community, right? So I I, I arrived there. Colby kind of introduced me to people. They asked why I was there, whatever. I go to the top for the per, first practice run, and um, you know, on the on the we're in the U-Haul riding up and. Uh, the guy's like, so what are you going to do? And I'm like, well, I'm going to, you know, make a video talking about the pavement conditions and how it affects you guys going down the hill. And then I'm going to come back up and get some shots. And then I may make another video about certain sections of the pavement that are in the track and in the course. And then I'll go about that too. So I took my time making that video going down. They probably did, dude, they had a good run that first day. I think they did probably 15, 18 runs, dude. So they did a really good, had a good day. I took my time. I came down rested one time while they were still going and I went back up again when I came down the second time it was near the end of the day so some of the people were still wanting to go and some weren't the ones that weren't were waiting and asked me like well what do you think I'm like what well, I think what and they're like like you know what's the good part of the track like where where's the good lines I'm like man I'm I was just kind of doing the pavement conditions, but I can tell you what I know about pavement in general. Right. And I went over the, the fact that there's going to be four spots in the road all the way across that are more compressed and faster than any other spot. And they're going to be in a line going all the way up and all the way down. So the quicker, if you're going to move from corner to corner and transition to those lines and those lines are where the tires from all these vehicles have went yeah. thousands and thousands and thousands of times. Now, if you were to go down the hill on one of those in a straight line, versus right next to it you know a foot or two feet the other way in a straight line the one that you're on that's been compressed by road tires should be a lot faster than the other one by the time you get to the bottom right and then that threw in the mix well what about there was a spot actually where something had happened and they painted it yellow like they're like wanted everybody to be aware right like this is a hazard area and no one could figure out what happened but I found out what happened, right? I went by it. I've seen it a few times. A vehicle must have stopped there and caught on fire and it had caused mm -hmm. the it caused the pavement to expand. And when it expanded, it not only cooked the oil, but then it made it rabble. It made it very, very rough there. Now, it was a good stretch. It was probably, it was it was the full length of a vehicle. And that was down the the hill before you get to the chicane, the very first yeah. going down. Little right. Roller coaster section. right, right. So that whole stretch you know, everybody's humming pretty good at about the same speed, yeah, but 60. if you, yes, yeah, 60, but if you would hit that spot for 12 seconds and you were half a length in front of somebody and they hit that spot, that could be a full length before you go into the chicane, right? Like yeah, you totally could make the move with that. And that's, and that was my, that was my kind of my two, two cents. Like, Hey, these are the lines. I think it is going to be, there's not bad conditions, but there's one spot here that could be really bad. 
it had actually what we call pushed in a few spots where if you think about it in tectonic plates kind of on a hill, I'm sure you've seen it. Um, some of the pavement will actually want to kind of rise above another piece of pavement. Right. So then they patch that underneath there with coal patch to try to make some kind of a transition. But people were totally getting air, dude. Some of those shots, like people <laughs> getting air, jumping those things, right? Yeah, been there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you're there, you could just totally be like, whoo, you know, and uh, and when you get down there and I'd be like, did you feel that spot? And I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, you know, you know, all of a sudden when the sound stops for even a millisecond that you're you're airborne. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that was totally, totally cool for me to be able to do that and be there and be like, dude, yeah, that's a good, that's a pretty good evaluation, right? For a track walk. And yeah, to understand that there's a lot more that goes into it. I think people with an outside eye looking into it are just like, these guys are jumping on and giving her. It's like, no, dude. <laughs> exactly. Like, like there, there's a lot going on. Yeah. yeah. So this event that I'm going to in Argentina, uh, I have never been there, but I've gotten to watch the videos over and over and over again as I try to study it, which is valuable. It also can lead you in the wrong direction if you're watching videos of people that are riding a different style or different lines that you would be. Mm-hmm. But one thing is clear. This track has a lot of corners, but none of them really seem to be hard breaking corners. So it's going to be about the push, about good lines and blocking. And then at the very bottom of the track, there's a bridge, a concrete bridge with expansion joints at the beginning and the end. And like you said, everybody going over is catching air. And they put this bridge at the breaking zone of a fast corner. So right where you need to be setting up for a line, right where you want to have the smooth stability of breaking or figuring out your line, you have these little rollovers and everybody is catching air. Now, when you enter the bridge, it's not too bad because you're dropping off of a cliff and you're landing on the concrete. But when you exit the bridge, you have this, you know, inch or two lip that your wheels are hitting at full speed. Right. So it throws your line off. You're no longer smooth. You're no longer fast because of that. And it's um, it's honestly really hard to read because of that. Also, concrete gets dusty. It gets uh, a little bit slippier than blacktops. Mm-hmm. So it's it's uh, it's definitely something that I'm trying to consider what the best move is going to be, and <laughs> also keep an open mind of I'm not going to know for sure until I take those first runs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you take your practice runs and kind of see what's yeah. going on with it. That's the thing between concrete and asphalt um the porousness right so asphalt there's always going to have air voids right because we roll it and compress it and mash these hard materials down where concrete it's setting you're getting all the air out of it so that's completely hard right so the, the any kind of moisture will hopefully uh go into the pavement or evaporate where on concrete it's going to sit on there until it evaporates for the most part right if they seal it things like that so it's totally interesting i was just thinking like you know, do you, do you plan to try to set your line hard on the bridge so that when you come out of that, that jump, you're in the best position, or do you just give it? And then when you land position yourself, then to go into it, you know, that's, it's uh, yeah, it's a, it's a hard thing to think about. Exactly. So let's really quick then talk about pavement conditions and the adjustments that you make because of it. Right. So we can talk about the mindset stuff, right. Or stuff that, you know, your awareness of, Hey, it's going to be, we kind of touched on that a little bit. Hey, it's going to be wet. The paint over there on the right is going to be super slick. Um, How do you adjust? I seen all kinds of different wheels and people were changing uh, bearings and were they grommets? I think they were like uh, little bushings that are in there. Yeah. Bushings, right. For different things are are lean steer there. They compress at different rates. So it changes your stability, whether you have a really strong center point and a lot of stability or if you have a really nice smooth dive and you, you know, you can get into a corner with a lot of agility. Um, 
I ride for a bushing company called Riptide Sports, and they have the most diverse line of bushings possible, um, which really makes it great because I can now come to a track and bring a couple extra bushings that are small and they fit in my bag and completely change how my board is going to perform. It's like a race car if you're changing your, your shock compression and things like that, your tires. Um, every one of those factors comes into play. Um, and then as far as wheel shape goes, you know, we can make rain wheels where they have grooves. There's a company that cuts out the grooves. I just do it myself on a lathe and that helps disperse the water out of the way and, and gives a couple more sharp edges inside the wheel for traction, just like a car tire. Okay. Um, you know, you don't want to race slicks in the rain. It's the same exact thing for us, uh, especially because urethane doesn't grab nearly as well as rubber does. So those, those shapes and factors come into play a lot. Um, I ride for a wheel company, Seismic Wheels, and they have a really diverse lineup of wheels. So when I, when I think of track textures, it's our interaction with the world at that point. You know, we're, we're putting our life on the line at sometimes 80, 85 miles an hour. And the only thing that is making that possible is this tiny little contact of these small urethane wheels with the asphalt. Yeah. And, and that can be so different per asphalt um, where really rough things, you need a nice soft compound. So it actually interacts and, and bites into the pavement and you have this compression. So everything is really in line and in touch. Now, if you have a, a straight road where you don't have any corners, you don't need any grip, then you narrow up the wheels and you make them really hard. And that's going to give you more straight line roll speed. You're, you're losing less energy in the compression of your wheels. Mm -hmm. um, so before I go to these tracks, I look at what is the track like? How much traction do I need? How much roll speed do I need? You know, is it smooth pavement and I can run a harder wheel? Is it really rough pavement and I need something that's softer just to grab in and make the corners? Yeah. And, um, and I'll, I'll get the wheels that I think are going to work best for me there. Sometimes I've shown up to a racetrack and like I mentioned, those videos, you, you know, you sometimes get a false sense of what it's going to be like. And I got to a couple of places and went, oh, no, I got the wrong wheel. And you just make it work. You know, you do your best. But it's it's definitely a factor, especially when we're talking you're flying in and you're max weighted out and all of your bags and you have yeah. eight sets of wheels with you and all these pushings and a practice suit and a race suit and your helmet and your luge itself is another 20 something pounds. <laughs> and meanwhile, you're trying to go through the airport carrying three bags in a street luge that's, you know, four feet long. It's uh, it's not always the easiest thing. And sometimes I wish that I planned a little bit better, but I am really thankful that uh, the companies that are out there supporting the community have thought about this because them two are writers mm -hmm. and they really make sure that they have every option for what's available. Um, the seismic wheels that I ride, they're also a bit up to uh, personal preference. You know, there's other companies out there that make really grippy, hard to turn wheels. Uh -huh. um, they grip more, but they're more like, you know, a big heavy tank rather than something that's super nimble and more controlling. The I like a wheel that when I'm on the edge of traction and it's starting to slip and that corner, that sharp little lip of urethane is pressing into the blacktop. Mm -hmm. You know, as I come around a corner, if I need it to lose traction, I can just push it out just a hair and control that slide versus something that's either full grip. And then if you need it to slide, you have to commit to this big honky slide of a oh, wide yeah. patch. Um, so it's, it's writer preference and it's, it's experience knowing how to judge a road and, and determine what kind of material and wheel shape and wheel compounds that I'm going to bring. Um, and then a lot of the times I think I have it and I decide not to bring rain wheels and then it starts raining. So <laughs> 
you know, prime example is I'm in South Korea and it was a long flight and practice day was great. And then it started raining and I didn't have rain wheels. So you need a lathe to cut these grooves into your wheel. And I didn't have a lathe, you know, I'm in the middle of the mountains right. at the Olympic uh, training grounds there for the Olympics. They hosted there, the winter Olympics. And they happened to have a go-kart track. And mind you, these guys at the go-kart track speak zero English. So I come over there with my luge and a handful of wheels and I use my hand signals and the Google Translate app to go, hey, can I use one of your go-karts and hold my board up to the spinning wheel when it's on a jack and use it to power it like a lathe? And then do you have a pocket knife that I can cut? <laughs> and they laughed and laughed and laughed, but then they helped me because they're, yeah. you know, they're racers. They like it. They, they yeah. understand that these different things are really important to us. So we did. We sat out there under the overhang of their go-kart track with their go-kart up on a jack and used it to power the wheels still on our axles of our boards with a little handheld Swiss Army knife and cut in rain grooves. And then I got on podium. I got third place there. You know, it was it was an incredible experience. And there's absolutely no way that that would have happened if it wasn't for the help of others and being able to change my setup on the fly. Wow, man. And such a good story. Right. To be, able, so to be able to tell that story, like, and just be so like, oh, dude, and, and we podiumed. Like, I could, <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that makes it even better. Like, dude, we totally redneck ingenuity this thing yeah. and, and made it. Clip. And it was like seven or eight hairpins, and the pavement there, it was concrete with these grooves in it. Like, yeah. I don't know what it would be for. I've only cattle. seen it there. It looked like, yeah, it looked like somebody took a rake down the whole road. Yeah. It's for, it's for cattle. So a lot of times they'll groove it so that the cattle have something, whether they're okay. walking across, right. Or they're walking up. Most of the time they'll groove it so that it has some kind of foot. If they're going to move cattle, yeah, like, like then they don't slip and fall going down. It, the was incredible. it was the weirdest experience, but it was really fun and <laughs> we were able to make it happen. And yeah, it, it, it would just change it. It also helped the water roll off really well. Yeah. And I think that's the point, right. Of, of whatever they're doing. Like, Hey, we want to have the water off and create grip for wherever during a cattle yeah. crossing or whatever they're doing. That leads me. Um, I have two questions for you. Um, one, what about crack sealant? Like the rubberized crack sealant that you see? Yeah. People yeah. Like what is that? The, is it, does it give you the same kick? Like when you're on a motorcycle and you hit it, you're like, Oh my God. <laughs> um, does it do that when you're on luge too? It definitely does. Um, it, the big issue for me with we just call them tar snakes because of obvious reasons. They're black <laughs> snakes the yeah, and, yeah. And these tar snakes, when you're hitting them, you know, perpendicular and you're going straight and they're just across the road, yeah. they're not too bad. You know, you're not on the edge of traction, but like I mentioned, smooth is fast. And if you're in a corner and you hit a patch full of them, it's yeah. going to bounce you around. The other thing is kind of like the crest of a road when you see you guys pave the right hand downhill lane and then yeah. you pave the uphill left lane and then that transition down the middle if you just happen to accidentally find yourself going straight on it, just like a motorcycle on that kind of transition, you yeah. get shaken all over the place. It's hard to stay upright and you're on a lean steer vehicle. So as soon as your board starts wiggling, you start pointing all over the place and going yeah. in any which direction. So it, it's really important to know, you know, are these tar snakes in a straight line? Are they at an angle? Are you going to hit them in a straight section or in a corner section? Um, and then also you can see the guys that really care about their work and they put in the time to make it smooth. And then other people just clump just it on there, hit it with a torch and call it good. Yeah. Write their name and draw a little, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, smiley face. I've seen a handful of them and it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this is that's international, that's like, international asphalt language. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the other question I had for you was, um, 
new pavement versus old pavement, right? So when we when we talk about the wheel choices and these types of things, um, on and this is just in my brain the way that I I would think it would work. Um, and let's say there's a both smooth pavements, a newer asphalt that had just been paved is going to be stickier because a lot of that asphalt concrete that's in there, the black oil that's in there is going to be there. If you had a softer wheel on a stickier, newer pavement, that would be slower than a harder wheel, correct, on that newer pavement. So is that the right adjustment or what do you do you make an adjustment for that, depending on if that's the case? So, so I'll go even more extreme and we'll think about street skateboarding and uh, full concrete parks. Their urethane wheels are incredibly hard. So like a ball bearing, you have a steel bearing and a, you know, a steel ring, and that's going to roll faster. But as soon as you need traction, it's going to slip. So on blacktop, we run really soft urethane that's uh, really grippy. And the harder the wheel, the faster it's going to roll. Like you said, the softer the wheel, the more grip you're going to get. And as far as the interaction with new pavement, I think from my experiences, there's a fine line. Really freshly paved roads are still leaching out that oil. Yep. You, they'll tend to be really slippery sometimes, no matter what wheel you have. And then really old roads are rough and you just can't get your wheel to grab in the same amount. So I think there is a sweet spot of a road that has been recently paved. So it's smooth. So it's nice and sticky blacktop, but also it's, leached in and absorbed that oil and rained a few times to push out the oil that's sitting on the top. Um, also, if it's uh, any road and it is the first rain of the season, it's going to push that oil right out of the top and it's going to be slippery. So yeah. it, it, it helps if the roads have been washed, if there's been a decent amount of rain a few weeks before, rather than a lot of traffic on it that's just spitting oil all over the place. And then suddenly the first rain happens and we're just hydroplaning across it. Um, so I think there's a sweet spot in there somewhere. Yeah, that's uh, one of the things I noticed at Ohio is they the town brought the street sweeper out. Like that town, uh, Bainbridge loves, I guess must just love the They're fact great. that it happens. There, they, they love it. So they'll bring whatever out they needed out there. And it was great to talk to the community, right? That community loved it. And the guys are like, oh, I love seeing these guys. I never do it. But oh, I love watching these guys come out here and do this. Been watching it for X amount of years. And people coming to the end of the driveways and bringing their lawn yeah. chairs out and checking it's everything. Awesome. It's totally awesome spectator sport, but for me, yeah. but I've even um, seen somebody pull out a, a torch dryer like they use on airport yeah. tracks and stuff like that. So there was a, a guy that was trying to do a speed challenge in England, and um, I believe he was in England, somewhere in Europe, and the road was wet and you can't go that fast when the road's wet. So they had a big budget. They were doing a video and they pulled out those road dryers that is a jet engine with the exhaust pointed straight on the ground. Mm -hmm. and dried it just as quick as it was getting wet for him oh that's crazy it was incredible stuff it really was like, yeah Gil, yeah we want to see you go fast as you can yeah exactly. yeah, yeah yeah dude do it we'll help you yeah we'll help you <laughs> not gonna watch but you do that <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah you do that we'll help you what else can we do to make you go faster yeah yeah, awesome. yeah. so uh my friend, it's been an, uh, an amazingly insightful conversation about your world and uh, and the pavement and everything around it. Real quick, I want you to kind of let everybody know that's been listening um, where they can find you online and, uh, you know, your social tags or whatever. Yeah. And then um, then we'll kind of talk about maybe some other info, too. But real quick before we do that, where can people find you at, Ryan? So my last name is Farmer and I skate down hills. My Instagram and on Facebook, Farming Hills. Um, 
easiest way to find me is there. You can always reach out. Um, with these things, as I mentioned, I rely on support from people and businesses that see some value in investing in what we're doing. Regardless of if I'm gonna pay for a road to be paved, I am gonna be going down that road and I'm part of the community that shows off what great work you guys do. Um, and these international events are not cheap and USA Skateboarding does not have the sort of budget for it. So it's all out of pocket and with the help of sponsors that find what we're doing, find out what we're doing as something valuable for themselves. Um, so I'm happy to provide content, you know, logos, anything like that. Um, so if anybody says, hey, this is cool and this rings with me and you wanna be part of the scene, whether you wanna get into it and ride down the hill, I have extra gear, come out and find me, you know, we'll, we'll figure something out. I'll find somebody close to you. You know, farming Hills is my social media. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm always looking to expand our connections with people. So one more thing, um, tell us about world skate and the info on it and what we can find. My, my boy has the team USA poster hanging up in his, uh, yes, I love it. Yeah. So, um, essentially our sport is not in the Olympics yet. But like any other sport, once they start recognizing a discipline, they have to look at the other disciplines. So with skiing, you have speed skiing, freestyle, all these types of skiing. Now that there's two disciplines of skateboarding in the Olympics, World Skate hosts those Olympics. They're an international Olympic uh, committee that oversees all disciplines of skateboarding. And now that they have two disciplines in the Olympics, they have to start looking at the other ones, which includes us. So okay. in 2019, it was the first time that Team USA had skateboarders that were doing downhill and street luge. Street luge is just skateboarding that you're laying down on. It's just another discipline of skateboarding. Right. Um, just made to lay down on like a board for the park. Um, so in 2019, I went to Barcelona and competed and I got two silver medals there at the first ever Olympic organized downhill skateboarding and street luge race, which was amazing and was an honor. And now uh, it's supposed to be every other year, but the pandemic slowed things down. So this is the second one in Argentina. Uh, so I made the team super honored and excited about that. And I'm gonna be going there to race uh, November 8th through 14th with the Team USA suit. I'm working with Quickskins suits, which are, they make a lot of other Olympic sports cutting edge. You know, they have their suits in wind tunnels, testing the limits of what's going on. And we're finally making these connections with the outside world, which cool. is great. Um, yeah, I'm really excited about that. Cool, man. Well, I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to a lot of that stuff, even the tech stuff, like the suits, like I get interested in that, right. Of like, dude, how are we going to apply this to make this stuff even better? And I think once, like once, you know, like you were saying that outside world starting to touch it a little bit and then all of a sudden all it takes is somebody with a little bit of resource, a little bit of insight to be like, Oh dude, we could totally make this or pull this off or, or do this this way or do it better in one way or another. Exactly. exactly. Connections are everything. Oh yeah, dude. That's what people tell me. Your network is your net worth. They say, yeah. well, depending on what, depending on what you define as your net worth, that can be very valuable. And for me, yeah. a lot of times it's my connections and my friends, right. Just throughout yeah. the world. Like 100%. A full dude, just living a, a full fulfilled life that I enjoy very much is my complete net worth. Like dude, when I get to the end, I'm like, dang, that was fun. Right. That was full. Uh, that's what I look forward to, man. And it's always about the connections and the community and the friends you make. My friend, uh, thank you once again for joining us. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, hopefully we get to have uh, some people back on here, maybe including yourself um, coming up here within the next year. I'm very excited for downhill, whether it's downhill skate, whether it's street luge, whatever it is. And the fact that our world is somewhat getting back to normal. 
I think we're going to have a lot of highlights, a lot of fun, and uh, a lot of stages that we're going to see all y'all on. So I'm excited for that. Um, any last pieces of advice or any last comments or quotes or anything you'd like to say here before we sign off? You know, I, I just want to say thanks to everybody out there that is putting in the long, hard work days to make these roads possible. Um, you have no idea how far your work goes to different reaches and different sports and just the quality of life of people out there. Your work is meaningful. It, it changes lives. And I just want to say thank you because it changed my life um, all for the better. You know, I really appreciate all the hard work that everybody does out there. Cool, dude. That's amazing. And it will make for a great soundbite for our industry. So uh, <laughs> totally, totally. Thank you very much. All right. For myself and for Ryan Farmer, this is Blacktop Banner. This has been episode 82. And as always here on Blacktop Banner, we speak asphalt. Peace. Liberty Supply has been the supplier for us when it comes to supplies as far as spray tips, street brooms, um, handles, uh, pour pots, flagging tape, uh, everything that we would need. We bought a melter from them, a crack melter from them. When you call Liberty Supply, you get Sam. Sam is the owner. Sam and his brother Mike both own the company. How often can you do that? Can you call and get the owner directly as soon as you call the number? And if you go to their website, libertysupply.biz, you'll see the full array of things they got. We've purchased our chalk lines from them, our chalk. We've had to grab some number stencils and things from them from time to time. So they have a pretty good supply of everything that you would want as far as supplies and tools and things of that nature. Our spray tips we purchase from Liberty Supply. So all the spray tips for spraying our sealer, we purchase from Liberty Supply. I mentioned the website, libertysupply.biz, but you can also call 800-397-9907 and you'll get Sam. They also are on Facebook and Instagram. I recommend going and checking them out, checking them out on there as well. And if you call Liberty Supply, tell them Marvin sent you. Sam will say, oh, cool. I know that guy. Uh, I golf with Sam from time to time. And I will say I beat him by a stroke last time we were out. So you can rub that in a little bit too. But... Honestly, truthfully, when it comes to Liberty Supply, we're thankful to have them. They're a valuable resource for us here at Wiscote and Dubuque Asphalt Maintenance. Super great guys, super nice guys. They want to help. If you run into any issues, Sam will make it right. I can promise you that. What more can you ask for from a supply company, an asphalt tool and equipment supply company? If you guys have been listening to the show for any amount of time or you follow me on any social media, you'll know that I have been using Stencil Plus to get all of our stencils for our striping stuff for quite a while now. One thing about Stencil Plus is they have all the stencils that you could want. They have all the different various thicknesses of these stencils as well. They can create any custom stencil. And more than likely, if you get a hold of them and ask them to create a custom stencil of your company logo, they will do it for free. They have been doing that for a while now. But beyond that, they can create multi-piece stencils, custom stencils. Uh, they have all the stencils you could want for any of the retail chain stores. So if you're doing a big box store or something like that, they have that as well. It's really easy to find them. They're at stencilplus.com. 
They're on social media everywhere. Jeff and the team does a great job with their social media and being in the groups and being active on Facebook and Instagram and things like that as well. It is free shipping on all orders within the United States. That's right, free shipping on all the stencils ordered within the U.S. So pop over to stencilplus.com. You can use code BB10 to get 10% off of your order at Stencil Plus. BB10, as in Blacktop Banter, BB10. You get 10% off your order. So if you call in and say Blacktop Banter referred you or you say BB10 or say Marvin said, I can get 10% off, they'll honor that as well. You add that in the code spot at stencilplus.com if you want as well. You get 10% off. The number to call if you're going to call versus go to stencilplus.com is 877-372-6055.